people have just incorrect stereotypes about mm. Wichita and about Kansas and, and a bunch of really just in, just not very funny Dorothy and Toto jokes. <laughs> That'll never end, I'm afraid. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I think I looked at it as a, an opportunity to say, well, you know, this is, this is kind of a little bit more how Wichita really is. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today's episode is about how storytelling relates to place, and I'm calling it a critical race theorist's guide to writing smut novels with Dr. Kevin Harrison. Now, Kevin and I actually came up with this title the day I met him earlier this year. He'd been speaking at an event in Kansas with my old friend Kay Monk Morgan, who's been on this podcast before. Kevin teaches honors classes and works in community engagement with Kay at Wichita State University. And while their main message that night aimed to demystify the complicated concept of critical race theory, which has become a politically charged catchphrase in recent years, I learned later that Kevin performed as a musician and wrote urban erotic fiction novels well before he became a university professor. Wichita is my hometown, and while this podcast is global in scope, I often come back to stories about Wichita and Kansas, in part because I think as travelers and travel writers, the way we experience our hometowns can help us understand and experience new places. Kevin and I have a lot in common as Wichita natives. We both grew up near North 21st Street, and our fathers went to the same high school at the same time. But while I grew up near a stretch of West 21st Street that was mostly home to white residents, Kevin grew up in a mostly black neighborhood five miles east of my childhood home. Like any place in the world, including the places we visit as travelers, the stories coming out of any given place will depend on who is telling the story and how they tell that story and what exactly they choose to include in the story. Kevin's first book was called Cameron Banks' The Reality Show, and it was about a successful young black man making bad romantic decisions and dealing with their consequences. This book technically falls into the category of erotic fiction aimed at black urban audiences, but it wasn't set in a big city like New York or Chicago. It was set in and sought to represent the black experience of Wichita, Kansas, a medium-sized city in the middle of the country. Kevin and I talk about that book in this week's interview, which took place in a coffee house we both frequented when we were young men in Wichita back in the day. We talk about finding ways to tell your own story, even if other people aren't telling it or if other people are telling it wrong. We talk about what it's like to see yourself in stories and what it's like to try and represent places that are often misunderstood by outsiders. We talk about how some American stories just don't get told as often, especially if they aren't overt success stories, and how Kevin helped Kansas-born NBA player Corleone Young write a book that helped him tell his own story from his own perspective after several national-level sports publications used Corleone's story as a cautionary tale of joining the NBA at too young of an age. In general, we talk about storytelling and the stories that people are telling about themselves in various places, be that in American places like Wichita or further-flung global communities in places like Venezuela or Nigeria or Mongolia. We start by talking about how I first learned that in addition to academic writing, Kevin has written what he characterized as smut novels. Let's listen in. You have a doctorate that involves critical race theory a little bit, but you're also a much uh, broader storyteller. Okay. And to paraphrase you, you said, I wrote a smut novel or something like that. I did. That's exactly what I said. <laughs> right. And so I think that there's some people who are listening right now and are thinking, yeah, okay, critical race theory, I bet this feels like school. Wait a second, smut novels? This is interesting. <laughs> so um, having read your smut novels, I'm doing air quotes right now, um, that predates your doctorate. And so I know that you were a music, musician before this happened. Okay. 
and so let's dive right into the specifics of your smut novel. It's called Cameron Banks, uh, the reality show. Is that Correct. Yeah. Cameron Banks, the reality show. Huh? Yeah. And it's, it was published in 07. Mm -hmm. Um, and when reality shows were on TV a lot. Right. Uh, and it was, that was also sort of a, it was pre-social media and it was, a sort of a boom era for urban fiction, mm -hmm. uh, which correct me if I'm wrong, this probably qualifies as urban fiction. I would call it urban fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about this. How did you come about writing a book uh, about this young man named Cameron Banks who um, had three or four girlfriends at once, according to the story? Right. How did you end up writing this story, and, and did you self-publish it? I self-published it, yes. Yeah, yeah, and it sold it sold a lot, actually. Sold quite a few. I think um, close to 7,000 copies. That's not too bad. Yeah, yeah. no, that's, that's terrific, especially when you're publishing it yourself. Right. So this weird... And also you think about urban novels. You think, oh, well, somebody... Writing a story in New York and selling it on the streets in Harlem or, you know, or in Los Angeles or Chicago or Houston, a big city. Wichita is a mid-sized city. Right. So moving 7,000 copies in Wichita uh, of a story about a young man who may or may not be based on you. Uh, <laughs> I, I played the fit. <laughs> right, right. How did this come about? Well, it's interesting how it came about. You had said something earlier about, you know, here I got a doctorate. I'm a musician. And, then I, and, and as I've gotten older, I've started to realize pretty much what I really am as a storyteller at heart. So mm -hmm. everything else I've done, I could list 10 things, but all of them are really just tools to help me tell stories. And I think stories are the best way, at least for me, and I think a lot of people, to express whatever it is that we've experienced or whatever even we may personally have gone through. And so um, around the time that I wrote that Cameron Banks, the reality show book, there was a really popular book called the Sex Chronicles, and it was by an author named Zane, Z-A-N-E. It's a black female author, and this was basically a, a book that a, a lot of black women started to gravitate to. And, and just one name, Zane. Zane, uh-huh. Okay. And, and uh, so I said, okay, if every female I know is reading this, I need to read it. Because, I mean, I like black women, and so I want to understand what it is they're reading. So, yeah. so I got a copy of it, and, and I read it, and I said... What if there was a book like this from a male perspective? And so I tried to uh, take a look at the sex chronicles from a male perspective. And then one of the young ladies who had the book said, how about looking at another one of her books called Addicted? And so I looked at Addicted. And so my book was kind of looking at these two um, stories from a male perspective and saying, OK, this is this is way women view dysfunctional relationships, mm -hmm. unhealthy relationships. Mm -hmm. Let me say it from a male perspective. And so although the book is not an autobiography, some of it is based off of some of my relationships. Um, and and of course, you know, it, there's a lot of promiscuity in the book. And, and so I want to not glamorize that because sometimes. In, in male environments, I know in African-American male environments, but I would assume male environments just entirely. Sometimes that type of behavior is celebrated and it shouldn't be. And so I wanted to make sure it wasn't celebrated. So as you can tell from reading the book, um, there were consequences. There were some pretty harsh consequences that the that the main character had to deal with. So while he was celebrating his lifestyle and high fiving himself throughout the story at the end, you know, there were there were some pretty severe, some pretty dire consequences. Well, just so just so my listeners know uh, um, that Cameron Banks, the lead character, is a successful young black man in, right. in Wichita, Kansas. Uh, and then somehow he ends up sort of hooking up with the boss's daughter right. and then with the client's daughter and then with a uh, woman he knew from college. And then um, there's a fourth one. Uh, 
Oh, and then then a girl from his neighborhood. Is right. it from his neighborhood? Yeah, from a neighborhood. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, and and so, I think that there is a little there, there's some sort of this masculinity story going on. Right. You know, I think um, Cameron Banks was in his early 30s. I think young men when they become in, come in a position to be attracted to the opposite sex, they don't really know how to manage that very well. Right. And so it feels like Cameron was dating women just because he could. And he wasn't being very self-examined about that. And mm-hmm. so given that that urban fiction often was it like women, black women buying these books and, and reading them often like the famous from the urban fictions specifically, it's, it's sort of like uh, Sapphire or, or Sister Soulja wrote yeah. his best-selling books, but they're, they're women. So how did you, how did you uh, conceptualize writing a story for the market um, from a male perspective? You know, uh, I hate to say this, but the the Zane books are really graphic and descriptive. Okay. And graphic in the sexual sense. In the sexual sense, okay. and, and, and so that was my starting point. Okay. Then from there, I, and I didn't start with an outline or anything. I just started writing just graphic sex scenes. That's what I started. And then from there, I said, okay, it has to be more to it than this. What else do I want to say? And kind of going back to what you said, this is an African American male that's successful in Wichita, Kansas. Mm-hmm. That's that's very common, but. Stereotypes would tell you that it's not. So I said, hmm. let me let me expose some unhealthy behaviors, but let me also um, disrupt some stereotypes because mm-hmm. um, this is an educated man. He's a CPA. You know, he's doing well. Um, and, you know, people might say that that doesn't exist in a place like Kansas, a black male. But there are several <laughs> like that here. And, and so I said, let's let's highlight that as well. And so I was trying to kind of kind of highlight some positive characteristics of this person and, and also show that, you know, Good people make bad choices, too. So and then from there, I just kind of developed the characters around those traits. And then I had a bunch of loose pieces. I had some really graphic sex scenes. I had this successful guy and I had all these women. And then I said, "Okay, now I need to tie this into a story. And so I just kind of plugged it and continued to develop it. And I don't know, pretty soon I had I had a story. (laughs) Did you write your way into it or did you sort of know where he was headed? I wrote my way into it. It, It's the funny thing is, is that when I really got into it, I I start thinking, I can't wait to see what happens next. But the only way I can see what happens next is that as I was typing the story, it was like revealing itself to me. So it was almost like I was watching a story on TV, waiting to see what happened next. Only I was creating it. So yeah, I was a, I was kind of a spectator and a creator at the same time. It's interesting. I didn't know that until we were talking just now, but there's more sex scenes early in the book. Than there are later in the book. It's right. like it started out and there was a lot of sex scenes. But pretty soon, maybe as an author, you got interested in this Cameron guy and why he was making the decisions he was making. You know, I think, I, I, again, it wasn't, it wasn't an autobiography, but I started to identify some things about myself that I didn't like. And so it was kind of in a sense, therapeutic, it kind of helped me to reflect a little bit and say, okay, these are some things I need to change about myself. And so in the process of writing it, I kind of started trying to change personally. And I think that was reflected in the direction that the story went as well. That's interesting. Um, Because like of the two women, he seems to be the most interested in one is the boss's daughter. And she's sort of put together from a put together family. Right. And the other one you feel love for is, is Cheyenne, the girl from the neighborhood. Right. Uh, but who's made some bad decisions in her own life. Right. It creates some problems, but it seems like he really sort of loves Cheyenne, you know? Um, and so I'm not going to get all about a biographical with this, but it seems like there's sort of a class story going on too. Oh, know? no doubt. That, that, um, uh, 
that there's a, a woman he's really comfortable with who's made her own bad decisions. And then sort of a woman who's from this aspirational life that he's sort of moving into. Um, and he's really interested in her too, but then he's, he's messing up, you know, he's, he's digging the hole deeper and deeper. Yeah, he's torn and the women couldn't be any more different. One of them is a graduate from Stanford mm -hmm. and she's the boss's daughter. And the other one is, I mean, you know, I think the story is introduced with her rolling up weed. You know, she's on Section 8 housing assistance, uh, com completely different lifestyles. Yeah. So. yeah. so one funny thing that came out of our initial conversation about this before I'd ever read the books is that. You have had some interesting uh, reactions from people who've read the book. And sometimes, and correct me if I'm wrong, like you were substitute teaching at a high school or a middle school. And they're like, are you Kevin Harrison who wrote this book? And you have to answer the question to a middle school girl if you wrote this book. Yeah, I was teaching uh, seventh grade at a middle school here in Wichita. And um, one of the young ladies in the class raised her hand. And I was like, yeah, can I help you? She said, you wrote this book, didn't you? I was like, no, no, I haven't ever written a book, but you need to continue working on your vocabulary words or whatever we're working on. And she said, I'm pretty sure you read that. She said, you, and she said the name of the book. And I was like, no, that wasn't me. And, and I just kind of changed subject. So the next day she brings the book. I guess her mom had it. And she looks at the picture on the back. She says, so you mean to tell me this isn't you? And I said, no, uh, no, that's not me. I said, but you should put that up. That book's not appropriate for, for a middle school girl to have. But yeah, that was, uh, it was kind of embarrassing. What is your average reader, do you think? Who, who uh, for, for that, not for your critical race theory, academic writing, but like of the people who uh, were attracted to this book about Cameron Banks, this Wichita young man making mistakes, right. who was it, who, who read it? Uh, you know, I would say... 90% were women, mm -hmm. which is what I targeted it to. Mm -hmm. And then my marketing strategy, I knew that that's what it was going to be. Because what I did is I went here, Tulsa, Oklahoma City, and a few places in the Dallas area. And I, and I built relationships with, with hairstylists. Okay. And um, so I asked all these hairstylists, would they be interested in selling them on consignment? And they did a consignment contract. And then I said, this is all I want you to do is when girls come in, when women come in to get their hair done, just give it to them. And if they don't want it, just have them give it back. But hopefully they'll get into it and they'll want to buy it for it. And about probably seven, eight out of ten of the ones that started reading it ended up buying it. Mm -hmm. And several of them ended up buying, you know, two or three copies. Cause, so they must have liked it. Uh, maybe they liked it or maybe it was kind of helping them understand guys like Cameron Banks a little bit better. But, I mean, for the most part, you know, they liked it. But that was, the, that was my – I did a couple other things, but that was my main way of selling the book. I probably – I probably, by the end of it, might have had it in about 75, 80 salons. I didn't know that. That's amazing. What? That's really interesting. I think there's sort of a meta-narrative here about uh, urban fiction, which is about black people seeing themselves in stories. You know, right. I think um, there's been many phases. I mean, there's many authors have written about, for example, poor people, like Charles Dickens wrote Oliver Twist way back in the mm -hmm. day. Um, but then in the seventies, there was this iceberg slim. Do you remember iceberg? Oh slim? yeah. 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 Okay. The book American pimp. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, that was grassroots stuff, you know, and actually there was a film, uh, there was black filmmaking in the seventies. There was also sort of do it yourself type filmmaking. Like um, Dolomite. Yeah. Yeah. Rudy Ray Moore. And then actually, um, we're sitting in Kansas, Gordon Parks who came up in Kansas. Mm -hmm. Um, 
he what did he direct? He did the Learning Tree. Did the Learning Tree? I think his first film was a was Shaft. Shaft, yes. And then he did yeah. Super, Superfly. Yeah, yeah. That was Gordon Parks. Yeah, he did Superfly and he did Shaft. He did the Learning Tree, huh? Well, there is this American narrative thing happening because I know that when Spike Lee made She's Got a Habit, which is also actually about a woman who had several men in her life at right. the same time, um, that was independently produced and. It wasn't the story that turned people's heads. It's that that was filling up theaters. Mm. There's uh, black audiences were going to see a movie that they weren't used to seeing. Right. Know? And so I think that there's a, a form of storytelling where people see themselves in the story and they get excited about it. Right. Uh, and so it's cool that um, beauty shops, you know, was a part of your success with that book. Um, what was the reaction? Do people like Cameron Banks? You know, since since uh, Cameron Banks makes a lot of mistakes you know he's sort of a jackass in some ways <laughs> right. he's he's a good liar and he knows he's a good liar <laughs> um he, he sort of ends up being with women and he's not sure why he's sort of being with women because he can instead of because he has a heart for them especially this woman from college it feels like he's just with her because he can um what do, what do your women readers think of cameron banks i don't think they really liked cameron banks so much but most of the women unfortunately were familiar with guys like Cameron Banks. And again, unfortunately, I have even, I wouldn't say I was exactly like him, but I've probably modeled some of those characteristics at some point in time, especially in my younger life. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, there, it feels like there might be something a little bit universal about that kind of male character um, who, because he can occupy a certain romantic world, he does. You know, oh, yeah. He, he dates women he, he's not too sure about just because he can't, you know? Um, and... Do you have many men read the book and want to talk about this? I, you know what? A few, but but not many. I mean, it, it's kind of funny. I think there were more that read it than, than admitted because I had a couple guys that kind of wanted to talk to me about the book, but they were kind of low-key reluctant. Like, hey, yeah, I read the book, man. But uh, you know, but it's kind of like didn't want anybody to know it kind right. of deal. Yeah. But but the ones that read it, they seem to they seem to like it, though. 15 years on, how do you feel about the story? You know, um, uh, do you feel uncomfortable about any aspects of it or do you think it holds up? No, I don't feel uncomfortable about it. Um, so I didn't release the sequel. I, ha I had a sequel that I had, it's done, it's written, edited and the whole nine and I never did put it out. Um, but it's called that thing mm -hmm. is the name of the sequel to it. And I decided not to put it out because I, um, I just decided, you know what, I, I want to continue being a storyteller. I want to write some other books and I don't want to get pigeonholed into into that genre. And of course, I, I probably still could have done it because Stacey Abrams, a lot of people don't know who writes those type of books, too, under a whole different name. And okay. that her political career got really big. That got exposed. But there's some books by an author named Selena Montgomery. That's actually Stacey Abrams. So I okay. guess I, I guess I could have. But you know, I want to do some research based things. And, and so. I don't. I didn't want it to be like, oh, that's the guy that writes the nasty, sexually explicit books. So, so I just made a choice, and, it, and, and I should have put it out, but I'm not going to, because <laughs> I had, I mean, I had, I had, you know, a few thousand people that were waiting for it, right? Yeah. yeah. So, and that that makes money, and know, it makes money when but when it's your book. Well, what I like about this story is that you're a guy who's who's Dr. Kevin Harrison now, but you're not one of those guys who is who was, went straight from undergrad to grad school and, and tried to become a professor from the get-go. Right. You, you actually had a life before you got into academic. Right. N not to disparage uh, people who, who uh, go for academic career from the get-go. My sister has pretty much always been a professor. Okay. Um, but 
there's this specificity to the Kansas storytelling. So do people, are you from, what's your neighborhood technically called? Northeast Wichita? Northeast Wichita, yeah. Matlock Heights. Matlock Heights, Mm -hmm. yeah. I I was from Sunset Heights, Northwest Wichita. Okay. Um, This is before Wichita had suburbs in the Northwest. It was at uh, 21st and West, if you know the 21st and West area. I'm 24th and Hillside. Okay. So we're sort of parallel sides of North Wichita on the other side of the river. Um, do people from Northeast Wichita who, who are familiar with your work come up and say that's cool that we, that, um, that Wichita is being portrayed? Or is it more of a general uh, urban fiction audience that you get feedback from? No, I think there's some people that appreciate that I talk about Wichita. And, and I even did the same thing in, in Corleone's book to a certain degree. Okay. And I, I think um kind of goes back to a couple things that you said. One... And you you traveled a lot more than I have, and in in my limited travels, people have just incorrect stereotypes about hmm. Wichita and about Kansas, and and a bunch of really just and just not very funny Dorothy and Toto jokes. <laughs> That'll never end, I'm afraid. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And so I, I think I looked at it as a an opportunity to say, well, you know, this is this is kind of a little bit more how Wichita really is. And what, I lived in Atlanta for a while, and that was the one thing that annoyed the hell out of me is, wow, I didn't know that there were black people in Kansas. When I would say, where are you from? I'm from Wichita. Wow, I didn't know there were black people in Kansas. Well, I'm, nope, there aren't. I'm the only one. And I'm in Atlanta now, so there are no more, right? Um, but I think I, I think I was kind of trying to dispel some of those stereotypes about Kansas and Wichita specifically, and as well as, you know, stereotypes about black people in Kansas specifically. So Yeah. No, it's it, it, it's it's funny that people will say, you know, there's black people in Wichita. It's like I went to high school with Barry Sanders. You right. Barry Sanders, you know. Yeah, no doubt. Um, and Curtis McClinton before him, he not only played for the Chiefs but went to Harvard. You know, there's there's um, yeah, there's diversity in Wichita. I guess people people fall back on stereotypes. That's part of the the, the mission of being a travel writer is to, to dispel the expectations we have by reporting on other places. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about the Corleone book. I mean, how did that come about? This and one thing I told you when, I, when you told me that you'd written it is that there's this America is obsessed with sort of success stories, mm-hmm. right? And there's a, there's a success story aspect to Corleone's story because he made the NBA, but it's called one and done for a reason because right. his is a story that's told less often. You know, we tell the the superstar super success stories, but Corleone's story is mixed in with some disappointment too. Right. And so how did this come about? This uh, young man who went to Wichita East, same school as you, uh, and then eventually decided to skip college altogether and play for the Pistons in, in a way that didn't turn out so well. Okay. What's the backstory of this book? So backstory, I've known Corleone pretty much his whole life. He's 10 years younger than me. Mm-hmm. We grew up not even a full block apart. You can, you can see his house from my backyard. And so I've always known him. I've, I even hosted his uh, his draft party. So I've known him for, for a long time, kept in touch with him through all his highs and lows of his career. Mm-hmm. And so I hadn't talked to him for about a year, and I saw this article come up on ESPN Grantland, and the writer's name is Jonathan Abrams. And Jonathan Abrams, was a he was a fan of Corleone's when he was a kid. He saw Corleone play in Madison Square Garden against um, – I can't think of the kid's now, name now. kid had a great pro career. His mm-hmm. name escapes me, but he – so he's a fan of him. He sees him play in a in a like high, AAU type look um, when he uh, saw him. No, it was a high school. You know, Colin played his senior year for a prep school, and so oh, they right, they right, almost right. play an NBA schedule. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so they played in New York at, at Madison Square Garden against Al Harrington, mm-hmm. number one, number two player in the country. And and Corleone wins that matchup, 
And now, fast forward, now this kid's not a kid anymore. He's a journalist mm-hmm. and he's a writer. And so he writes this story called The Forgotten Phenom. And is it about Corleone? It's about Corleone. Mm-hmm. And so I read it and it was kind of disturbing because I know him. And hmm. Hmm. this this article wasn't Corleone. You know, this was hmm. this was um this just wasn't. This was just a, a this article just talked about this as a disappointment and these was are it all a cautionary tale or was he just focusing on the negative? Um focusing on the negative, yeah. Okay. Yeah, more focusing on the negative. And so so I called Corleone. Mm-hmm. And I said, let's go to lunch. So we went to lunch and we we kind of chatted a little bit. And then I said, you have to take control of the narrative. Hmm. He said, what's that mean? I said, you know, you, you didn't have a long, lucrative NBA career, but that doesn't make you a failure. But if you let other people tell your story, that's how you're going to be depicted. And I think there's some value in your story that speak to something other than failure. Let's sit down, let's chat. And I think together we can we can create that story. And so he thought about it. And then, you know, after a few days, he said, yeah, let's do it. And so we started having conversations and tape recording the conversations. And then some things um, I just kind of had to dig in and do some research and find out. And then kind of after going back and forth, I think we came up with a pretty compelling story that speaks to really who he really is, other than what that particular young man wrote. Because and, and at that particular time. He, he gets popular again, but for the wrong reasons. That story comes out and some other journalists see it. Was this after his pro career had ended? Yeah, this is long after his pro career. Okay. And, and so the Jonathan Abrams article, it's, 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 it's pretty widely received. You know, he's, he's, a, he's a pretty, pretty big writer. He actually um, has written some books that have done pretty well as well. And so um, from that, other people start reaching out to Corleone, you know, Big newspapers, Boston Globe type of thing. Mm-hmm. And he's avoiding them because I don't want everybody in the world writing these stories about me. And he's even showing me text messages from people, from journalists, like, I would really like to talk to you. And and I said, well, do you want them to tell your story or do you want to tell it? He said, I want to tell it. I said, if they tell it, it's just going to be more of this. So he just started avoiding all those people. And then he and I created one and done. The reason we call it that is because there's a rule called the one and done rule. that means that you have to go one year. And so it's kind of un- to, to college one year before you can play in the NBA. And it's kind of, uh, at one point in time was kind of unofficially called the Corleone young rule. Cause he's, okay. he's the 10th player in history to go from high school to the NBA and it didn't work out well for him. And so unofficially it's kind of, alluded to him being the reason for that rule and so we just figured maybe we could kind of do a double entendre with that he was number 10 lebron james is probably the most famous example lebron and kobe, kobe probably yeah pretty, kobe yeah, yeah those was two. kobe the first no uh, i wish i could tell you the first i used to know but it was long before kobe but there was several there was uh moses malone there was uh almost malone, oh it? yeah daryl okay. dawkins um Kevin Garnett. Um, okay. I, can't re- I, can't, I can't remember the first person's name, but it was like late 70s, early 80s. I, oh. I'm going to say like, I'm guessing I'm going to say 78, 79, I think. I guess sports is a youth worshiping culture mm-hmm. and you retire early and, and it's different, you know. Uh, and so I'm curious, was was Corlin able to reinvent his story? Does he, does he feel good about um, being the author of his own story instead of being the subject of a story? Yeah, I, I can say without without a doubt he does. I mm-hmm. think it's it's kind of given him uh, a new life. And so 
even though he's a sports figure, it's not a sports book. The book okay. is a book that basically says whatever you're good at, you can go professional in it. You know, so it's, it's it's saying, you know, this is a kid who set some goals and accomplished something that very few people in the world have ever accomplished. And so obviously he knows how to set goals and works to achieve those goals. And so, yes, there were some mistakes made that didn't allow him to continue to uh, to enjoy that success. Um, and so it speaks to, you know, if you want to go pro in life, whether that is an accountant or whether that's a history teacher, the format is pretty much the same. You have to set goals. You have to work hard. <laughs> you have to, you know, believe in yourself and all these type of things. But also, whether you're an NBA basketball player or a taxi cab driver, you can lose it all if if you get complacent. And so the, the, the last lesson from that, and, and, and we speak to that in the last two chapters that, that um, really try to challenge the reader to kind of look at themselves and, and, and kind of take the lessons he learned and apply them to whatever to whatever it is they're doing. And the, the last lesson in, in that is that even if you fail, that's not the end of the world. I have failed many times, but I'm not a failure. Um, you're not a failure until you accept defeat. So if I get knocked down 47 times, if I get up 48, then I'm still, I still have a chance. And, and so that's what it's saying. No matter how many times you get knocked down, that's, that's not what matters. It's how many times you get back up that really counts. And, and so, uh, so his life experience gave him expertise that yeah. he can pass along. No doubt. What's your equivalent life story now? You know, you've, you've worn many hats in your career. <laughs> we haven't even talked about your music um, career. Um, and actually, there's another aside, but listen, you have a you have a song on YouTube, which I really like. It's called it's Hot Water Cornbread. Hot Water Cornbread, yeah. Sound of the darkness paints a lullaby. Sweet kisses, good night. Granny tucked us in so tight. Not a worry or a care inside, other than a mosquito bite. Serenades of sweet duets by lightning bugs and dragonflies. And every damn night, when I'm thinking of those times, and pray to God. Staring in the starry sky And I wonder Who's gonna make the green I wonder Who's gonna make him clean And I wonder Who's gonna take us fishing And make Tell me who is gonna make Hot water cornbread This lyric about video games And Rubik's Cubes And, uh, and lightning bugs um, my, uh, We call them fireflies in my family Right um, and uh, that's that, that's very much a story about passing stories along, right? Mm -hmm. That's a song about about uh, passing traditions along. Yeah, yeah. Passing yeah. traditions along. How that? I'm curious how that that song come about. So, I was fortunate to grow up with two sets of grandparents and a set of great grandparents, mm -hmm. and so that was a blessing. And so, I know my great grandmother, um, who was actually the child of slaves child child the, the child of slaves yeah so i had living and breathing conversations with right. the, with the child of slaves that's how close slavery is in my family to anyone who wants to argue that it happened so long ago yeah, yeah. um and also i would challenge them to google when slavery ended in mississippi but my my great grandmother used to make hot water cornbread and my grandmother made hot water cornbread and to this day my mother makes it and so one day I was eating hot water cornbread, which is cornbread that you fry instead of bake, basically. Okay, okay. And 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 um, yeah, I think it's a country tr tradition, and my my people are, are from the country. For you, you mentioned a fish fry. Uh -huh. Is that a family thing too? 
Hot water cornbread goes with fried fish. That's yeah, okay. yeah. You you kind of almost can't have one without the other, it, 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 especially like at a family reunion type function, right? Well, I just I, I have the countryside of my white family has fish fries too. So okay. I don't know if it's a country thing or a, or a black specific thing. Uh, probably a country thing, maybe. Okay. Maybe so. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Keep telling about this. Um. So so my mother makes it. So I'm, I'm eating. I'm eating. High, and my my grandmother and my great grandmother are since deceased, but I'm eating it, and it makes me think of them. Mm-hmm. And then as I'm thinking, and I'm like, wow. My mom I picked this up from my grandmother, who picked this up from her mother, who I'm assuming picked it up from her mother. And this is my imagination, but I'm assuming that maybe this is a tradition that maybe came from slavery. I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe we could research that and find out. And so I said, let's write a song that talks about um, how these traditions are passed on. And, you know, we'll, 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 we'll speak to it through this one particular tradition, hot water cornbread, but we we'll talk about some other things, you know, that surround that as well. So I didn't know you saw that song. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, no, it, it's funny. It was, it was one of the last bits of research I did, but it's just like, I fireflies, you know, fish <laughs> fries. I, this, this, there's something familiar here. Okay. And, it, and it's interesting how uh, maybe a cultural anthropologist could tell us about hot water cornbread and, and how far back it goes. It, that's not, my countryside of white America does not have hot water cornbread. Okay. There, there's other recipes. But Rubik's Cubes and video games, that's very much an 80s childhood thing. Right. You know? And those are other traditions. I, met, I imagine teenagers these days don't use Rubik's Cubes and, and play video games in the way that we did. Right. Um, but I guess there's ways of that stories, uh, that, that certain tastes evoke certain stories and, and the traditions that we live in. No doubt. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, what's what's your? We have a we have a, a, a fictional guy, Cameron Banks, who people might be tempted to to mistake for Kevin Harrison. <laughs> um, and then we have the story Corleo Young, you know, who's who's written about it at a national level. But you got to help him tell his story at a local level. Mm-hmm. Um, since you've worn many hats, what is the Kevin Harrison story? What's your life arc, and where where do you see yourself headed? Because it was funny that I saw you in in an academic talk, context talking about academic things, mm-hmm. but um, you've done. Many grassroots things as well. So, how do you see your story? I, I think going back to something we talked about earlier, I just I, I think if someone asked me the worst question that anyone could ask a human being, "What did you do?" Yeah. Um, because they're asking you what you do for a living, and then that just minimizes you to your job or your career, your occupation. And, and we we wear so many hats. And you know, I'm a father, I'm a son. You know, I do community things, I play instruments. But if I had to just give them an elevator speech. I would just say I'm a storyteller. And so everything I've attempted to do has just been an attempt to tell my story. I'm a firm believer that that people want to be heard and understood, and I'm no different. And so whether I'm playing a saxophone, whether I'm writing or singing a song and telling my experiences, um, whether I'm writing a smut novel or helping Corleone write his book, it's all an attempt for me to not only be heard and understood, but to also help other people who I think have a a powerful story to also be heard and understood. I think all people have powerful stories. So What's the best way to tell it, you think? I don't know. I think I use all the tools. So I do some public speaking and, and, and I use a combination of things. I sing songs. I play the saxophone. I do poetry. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I use everything that I, that I have at my disposal because I, I don't like to sit and listen to somebody just talk at me. So I try to make it entertaining and interactive as much as possible. And I, I don't know. I, so my life arc to continue to tell stories. And now that I am developing research skills to add that tool, the tool of research, I think, I think research will, uh, will take the stories I'm already telling or, and the ones that I want to tell and, and give them a little more validation. Never had much trouble 
finding things to do. We made a swinging granny strawberry patch out of an inner tube. I swear to God I wouldn't lie to you. It was far more fun than video games and rules. This has been DVA with Rolf Potts. You're listening to the song Hot Water Cornbread, as sung by Kevin Harrison. If you're interested in what Kevin and I talked about today, I'm giving away a few copies of his books, including the urban erotic novel Cameron Banks, as well as One and Done, which tells the story of NBA player Corleone Young. Just email me at deviateatrolfpotts.com and tell me which book you're interested in. More about both of these books and everything else that was mentioned in this podcast can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Cornbread